I'm Baz, and this is RuneQuest Year Zero. In idyllic Apple Lane, dark trolls and the trollkin followers are relatively common. None live there, but they regularly pass through on their way to other places, and some are said to linger in the lands nearby. Though brusque and rough-mannered, they're not always unfriendly, and they sometimes stay at the Tin Inn. However, an unmistakable mistrust exists between dark trolls and humans, and lately this unease has increased. Those from the era recall that many years ago, a dark troll named White Eye and a group of trollkin dwelling in the Rainbow Mounds kidnapped a farmer's child, set fire to one farmhouse, and raided another, killing an old woman in the process. To retaliate, the people of Apple Lane hired a group of wandering mercenaries, adventurers like yourselves. They ended the atrocities, quelling the menace for good. The denizens of Apple Lane thought the problem solved, and life returned to its sleepy former self. Recently, though, travellers are arriving in Apple Lane with tales of attacks by trollkin, this time aided by newtlings, normally a peaceful race of amphibious humanoids. One of the earliest raids was against a thief-taker's wagon, freeing the thief and stealing the bronze cage from the wagon itself. Next, the trollkin and newtling raiders burned a farmhouse down and chased off its residents. Coincidentally, a farmer named Rastolf, the child once kidnapped by the trollkin, now a man grown, was the owner of that farm. He recognised some of his trollkin attackers from their markings, older but very much alive. When another farmhouse was robbed in the dead of night, or the livestock taken, the villagers sought an end to the problem. Unfortunately, Apple Lane is currently without a thane, lawkeeper, and relies on outside assistance in the form of hired adventurers recruited from nearby Johnstown. Rastolf, acting as a spokesman for the landowners, has recruited some, and that's where you and your allies come in. After discussing terms with Rastolf, you've received adequate provisions to reach the mounds, a day's journey to the west of Johnstown. When you get there, you see that the giant's table is a double T formation, the cave mouth lying between the upright legs of the formation. The plinth legs are 10 metres high, and the horizontal stone topping them is about 12 metres long. The cave entrance stands 5 metres high and about 3 metres wide. The stone around the mouth is off-white in colour. The only sounds emitting from the dark cavern are soft, slushing echoes. Time for you to get to work. That's the opening paragraphs from The Rainbow Mounds, which is the final adventure of three in book four of the RuneQuest starter set. And it's the biggest of the lot. Uh, thanks very much to my youngest daughter, Emma, for the backing vocals halfway through that. I'm not doing it again. Um, okay, some thoughts about the Rainbow Mounds. And inevitably, there's going to be some spoilers in this. It's hard to talk about it without there being. So, you know, see you for the next episode if you don't want to hear anything about this adventure. I will keep it fairly light on the detail. I think you could probably still listen to this and enjoy the adventure. 
we will see. Anyway, that caveat aside, what are we getting here? So the biggest adventure, as I say, is clocking in at about 30 pages. It's nearly half the book in itself. So what's that, about twice the size of the other ones? And as you could tell from the opening scene, you've got a bit of a callback. You've got some stuff for the veterans and the fans here. I remember the Rainbow Mounds from last time round. Last time round being 40 years ago now. So when I got my box of RuneQuest 2, the purple one imported by Games Workshop, it had a copy of Apple Lane in it. And I distinctly remember the Rainbow Mounds. Never played it, but I remember it really well, mostly because of its map. And that map is reproduced within this. And I remember it because of the big zigzaggy corridor, which I'll come on to later. So there's some stuff here for the vets, isn't there? This is a return to a place which has been seen before. And I'm I'm going to say this must be the equivalent for RuneQuest to, say, keep on the borderlands is for D&D, or certainly the Caves of Chaos anyway. There's lots of parallels there. It's kind of a starter dungeon. And when you line it up against the other two adventures in here, you can see that this takes on RuneQuest through another lens. We've had a couple of straight-up combats, really a tutorial adventure. We've had a city investigation. And now we've got a bit of a dungeon delve. And I'm really interested by this because there are plenty of games that do dungeon delving. One of them's got that word in the title. It's not unfurrowed ground as far as adventuring is concerned. So I'm really interested to see what does RuneQuest bring to this most hackneyed of adventure activities. Now, the, you know, to be fair to RuneQuest and Grandfather, as I say, they're around at the start of the hobby, so they're as entitled to do an adventure about dungeons as anybody is. But the decision to put this in the book is an interesting one, I think. So let's look at how they do it. So what we have here is something that's not set in Johnstown, as I alluded to in the read-aloud text. This is now the second adventure that is not set in Johnstown, despite Johnstown being the place for adventure that got devoted a whole... I'm going to stop. I'll stop ragging on Johnstown. I think you've got my thoughts on that. <laughs> but now we're leaving it again to go and find something interesting to do. So what's actually going on? Okay, so here's a slight spoiler for you. What you've got is a cave complex, the titular Rainbow Mounds. And it's a really nice looking cave complex. It's, uh, it's not gridded. And that tells you everything you need to know about RuneQuest. This is very much more a kind of a slightly narratively based game. It's not really, despite being heavy on the tactics and skirmish combat stuff, it's not really the type of game where five foot steps are going to matter too much. So you don't have any grids on the map. You also don't have any numbers on the map. It's keyed by description. So there are about 30, in dis 30 distinct individual locations within the Rainbow Mounds. And they've all got names that kind of tell you what's going on in there. So, you know, there's one place called the Treasure Room. wonder what's in there. And you've got a place called the Mushroom Chamber. So you can kind of get a sense from the description what's going on. I think that's good. That actually carries a lot of the weight of a map. So it means that I can glance at this map, which is reproduced on one of the big fold-out sheets in the box, and I can have a sense of what's going on. If it said location 13, I'd have to flick to location 13 to find the title of the room. And uh, well, Although, as we're all used to doing that, I think it's quite a clever idea to put the names. They're functional, you know, stuff like the old hiding place, I guess, is a hiding place that's old. But it does the job. So, 
inside this cave complex, you've got factions. This is a good thing. This is not static NPCs hanging around waiting for you to knock on the door or kick it in and then do whatever they are programmed to do by the adventure. We've got factional play in here. Now, how well that's done, I'll cover a bit later. But essentially, you have got the following groups. You've got a gang of Trollkin, and they are led by Dark Troll and Cave Troll. So you've got your trolls. You've got a small clutch of Newtlings. These are cool. These are like little salamander people. So that's kind of an exotic race that I hadn't been introduced to much before. So this is RuneQuest-specific stuff, isn't it? You've got Trollkin, you've got Newtlings. Good, good, good. I like this. And then the third faction is a pack of rock lizards. And these are just unintelligent carrion eaters. Um, um, but they are led by a great mother lizard. And they are foes of the Newtlings. So you've got these three factions. And they've kind of carved out various bits of territory within the Rainbow Mounds. I love faction play. I love it. I love it in cities and I love it in dungeons even more. It does put an extra burden on the GM. To make a dungeon a kind of a living, breathing environment, you have to have some movement, you have to have some circumstances change, there has to be things in motion. And these these factions are actually a little bit static. They don't do very much with each other, but I think the introduction of PCs, which really is a fourth faction, is actually going to shake up the status quo. And that's where the adventure happens in what happens as a result of the PC's arrival. And that's a good thing. The players have got real agency. It's not really set out exactly what they have to do. And this adventure could be completed in, well, lots of different ways. All of that's good. So let's get into what's actually happening inside the Rainbow Mounds. So the way that this is written is a bit wordy for me. I did the, the verbal introduction which took about three minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was a lot of time you probably had to sit there listening to it, and maybe you hit fast forward, I don't know. But there's quite a lot of words in this. That's been true of the whole starter set so far, and I think that's fine on occasion, but in an adventure, if I want to reference something, I have found it quite difficult to flick through this book and find out exactly where stuff is, and the lack of numbers on the map hasn't helped that. So that's an issue. We start off with an awful lot of rules about darkness. I mean, an awful lot of rules. What is it? A good half page? A full column? Three, four hundred words, perhaps, on dealing with darkness? And you probably don't need me to tell you how to deal with darkness. <laughs> you, just, you either have some lights or you don't. It's harder or it's easier. You've got a bunch of stuff about the entrance cavern. There's lots and lots of perception rolls. Sorry, scan rolls and listen rolls. Um, and so on and so forth. And you've also got, and this is in this is in two ways this is a good thing, and in some ways it's a bad thing. This is a very natural set of caverns. There's all kinds of weird formations and stuff in here. So you can't lean on turning left and turning right, and you can't lean on squares and 50-foot corridors and 30-foot square chambers. What you've got is loads of jagged tunnels, which would be an absolute beast to try and map if that's the kind of thing that you wanted to do. On the plus side, it's very much more naturalistic and it is actually quite creepy. There are some caverns and chambers within this 
where the ceiling comes down really low and you've got to crawl on your belly to get through things. And I'm a little bit claustrophobic anyway, so maybe it has a big effect on me, but just the feeling of those tons of rock pressing down on you in the dark is actually quite creepy. And then there are other areas where it's much more vaulted ceilings, stalagmites, stalactites. You've got glowing fungus. You've got lots of running water and crystal clear stuff like that. So it's a really interesting environment, but actually quite difficult to describe. And so what happens is that the writer of this scenario tries to describe it for you. But in doing so, they really chew through the word count like something else. I'll give you an example of that in just a sec. So I'll read to you verbatim one of the locations. I won't give away too much of what's in there, but this is just an example then of the level of description that you have to chew through as a GM before you can present it to your players. This is the water cavern. So this lies pretty much smack bang in the middle of the Rainbow Mountains. It's almost like the crossroads, I suppose. At the entrance to this cavern from the white hallway, the vault arches some 12 metres above the ledge where the adventurers stand. This ledge is two metres wide. Below it, most of the cavern is filled with water. It extends three metres along the wall, then meets a bridge. The ledges and walls are all off-white. The ledge rises three metres above the surface of the water. The ledge and walls are wet limestone and very slippery, too slick to climb. On the wall opposite the ledge is a long, narrow, horizontal opening into another cavern. Light shone at that cavern reveals the walls glisten as if made of gold. In the dark, a pale blue glow emanates from the chamber. And then a little bit of redacted. A ramshackle bridge made of old rotten logs laid unfastened across each other leads to another ledge four metres away. It has no handholds or railings or any apparent handholds from which to tie a rope on either side of the bridge. The ledge across the bridge is two metres wide and six metres long. The twisting tunnel is the only exit from the further ledge except for the bridge. The roof and far walls of the cavern may be visible to the adventurers if they have lanterns, lamps, torches, or some other means of artificial light, such as magic. The far walls are a garish array of colours, sulfuric yellow gold, copy orange brown, verdigreed green, and shot through with veins of bluish grey. This is a natural phenomenon, and one of the reasons the Rainbow Mounds bear that name. Halfway up the wide stretch of wall, a waterfall gushes out of the rocky face, spilling into a great pool that fills the bottom of the cavern. Facing the waterfall, the adventurers also notice what appears to be a branching cavern at the waterline, halfway along the cavern wall to their right. But even strong light does no more than suggest its existence. A little bit of redacted. A grey band of rock runs from this dim cavern mouth across the cavern vault to the tip of the ledge leading to the twisting tunnel, thereby separating the orange limestone from the off-white rock. The water is three to five metres deep, shallower near the uh -uh, and about one and a half metres deep under the bridge. Whew! Now, <laughs> that's the third time I've read that. Are you getting a mental picture of what you're looking at as an adventurer? I think that's tough. I, do, I really do. It's really, really, really it's explicit in the description. And having the map in front of me really helps as a GM. This is tough to describe. This is really tough. And this is a starter set. I think that by trying to really provide a huge amount of help for the GM here, it might have been counterproductive. There's a lot going on. And I should say, 
I'm about a third of the way through the description of the rest of this chamber, which obviously with a bit of exploration and some rolls, you'll find out a little bit more about. There's a lot going on and a lot of meters and dimensions and bloody, 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 blah. It's a lot. Now, don't let me put you off. There's loads to enjoy here. Some of these locations are super cool. They're really interesting, evocative encounters. I would really look forward to running. And other ones, not so much. Other ones are just a bit mundane, really. And there's a real variety over these 30-odd locations. There's a lot of interesting places and a lot of places that aren't so interesting. And I suppose that's normal. It has got the old classic jagged tunnel, <laughs> I remember from way back, which is literally a tunnel where the corners are so sharp, you could hurt yourself. It was ludicrous 40 years ago, it's ludicrous now. Anyway, let's move on. Now, what's going on with these factions? Well, they are all described with good backstories. It goes all the way back to the first outing of Rainbow Mounds. You've got some Trollkin stuff happening here, and you've got an inciting event, which is specific to Glorantha. This is in no way a generic dungeon full of monsters, although on a surface level, that's kind of what it is. It's full of monsters but they have reasons to be what they are. They have reasons to do what they do. They all have agendas, and the PCs, crucially, can get involved in those agendas, can understand them, can relate to them, and it matters what they do. I think if you just go through this with your swords out and your spells up and just blast what you see, it wouldn't be a very satisfying adventure. And I don't suspect, actually, you would survive that long if that was the approach you took. So adventurers are going to have to be slightly more mature about their approach to this thing. And I think that might be, again, slightly difficult, depending on the players that you have. You don't really get a sense of that from the way that's presented to you. You said your mercenaries go and clear out the caves. But I think that would be the wrong approach to take. And the rest of the adventure has to kind of bend to the fact that, really, you need to get busy with diplomacy you really need to work to understand what's happening here. And yes, there will be some really big, brutal fights, none less so than the big bad, which, again, a little bit like the first adventure is kind of left to roam. Not much in the way of guidance about how best to introduce it. And I think because of the, st well, the, the stat block's enormous for this thing, and so are the numbers in it, if you drop this in the middle of your party, I think you could probably expect some blood to be spilled. But overall, it's a really nice adventure. It is overwritten. There's too much here, and it's very, very difficult to reference. As I'm recording this now, I'm flicking backwards and forwards, and I think you would have to do that a lot at the table. The stat blocks are all there. They're all massive, and I've moaned about that before. But there's a lot. Now, for veteran gamers... There'll be a nice piece of nostalgia in here as well. And I'm sure it would be fun for them to go back to the Rainbow Mounds. It's almost like a sequel. And there's a little call-out box for exactly that, about what you can see that's different. And it's really interesting that you can return to the scene of an adventure from 40 years ago and see that it's been dynamically moved on. So I love all of that stuff. For someone new to RuneQuest, there's loads to enjoy as well. You've got some proper RuneQuest monsters. And let's face it, this is the only place you're getting them, is in these adventures. There is no element of bestiary, apparent in the starter set. The only monsters that you see are the ones that are in the adventures. So we've got trolls for the second time in the collection, but we've got newtlings and we've got rock lizards. We've got 
more to play with, more to do. And the treasures are really nice as well. They're not just piles of coins. You've got some history to them. You've got, uh, you've got some lore. There's some really good stuff in here, some really good details. But those details are hard to find in the moment. Overall, though, the Rainbow Mounds rounds off this collection really nicely. It's going to take a few sessions to play, and I think there'll be some casualties along the way. And I think you could go and play it a couple of times, and it would be very different each time. The whole thing's wrapped up with some rewards and consequences, and I guess at that stage you're then free to do what you want to do, which will be, do you want to play some more RuneQuest? Do you want to dive deeper? And you're going to have to go and get some other publications to do that. But just before we leave this book, there is some further adventures stuff right at the back. And those further adventures have got some nice little seeds in there and some good ideas. There's a full table of 20 rumours in Johnstown that you could decide whether they're true, false or whatever. And each of those could be followed up on. And then there's a couple of pages of Johnstown encounters. Some random tables to roll on for the sort of people that you might bump into. And then, somewhat randomly, there's a page devoted to the Gloranthan calendar. So you can see the, the five seasons and sacred time and the days of the week and all of this, that and the other. So there's a bit of a, bit of a mixed bag, a lucky dip at the end, which really probably belongs in the Johnstown book, doesn't it, if it's about Johnstown encounters. But we do hit the single central issue. No one armed with just the starter set can do anything about these rumours. What can you do? You've not got enough. You're not you're not given the tools to be a GM in RuneQuest in this starter set. Not really. You're not really given the tools to play RuneQuest. You're given some characters, but there's not much you could do with them, etc, etc, etc. This is just a starter, so the further adventures page, unfortunately, is a bit of a lure that you really are going to have to invest some more time and money in if you want to pursue. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a terrible idea, but it is absolutely vestigial and really maybe not that necessary. Anyway, the Rainbow Mounds is now the end of three adventures, and I like them. They've done what they set out to do. They've coloured in the world. They've answered the question, what do you do in Glorantha? Well, there's three answers in three specific scenarios. And although I think there's a lot more that you could do, I do like that they shine a lens or shine a spotlight on three different aspects of adventuring. They're fine. They're not brilliant. They haven't blown me away. The bits I have really enjoyed are where Glorantha has come to the fore. And it is true that actually, with the exception of potentially the first adventure, you couldn't really just drop these into any old fantasy game. They are specifically RuneQuest, and I like it for that. I really do like it for that. I think it's probably acceptable that they're quite basic. That's fine. It's a starter set. But they are too wordy. And I think that with some editing and with some more layout decisions and possibly just a bit more brutality from the editor's pen, they could be tightened up a lot. I think these will be difficult to run because they're just a little bit unwieldy. You'd have to take a lot of notes. Okay. I think that's going to wrap up my discussion about the Rainbow Mounds and all of the four books at this point, which means we're kind of at the end.
Or are we? No, we're not quite at the end. There's still a bit to do. I may have gotten through the box, but I feel like I need to muse on that a little bit, let my stuff filter around in my head about what it all means combined together. So what I'll do is, we've got some call-ins now. Thank you ever so much for everybody who's tried to contribute. I love getting these call-ins. Let's listen to a few now and my thoughts on those, and then I'll come back at the end and let you know what's next for RuneQuest Year Zero. Hi, Baz. It's Stephen. Great episode. I think you are absolutely right in your love of published adventures. The whole need for the ability to do things and being shown how to do things is absolutely crucial to a game. And I think it's great that Chaosium have done and put some effort into getting some good adventures. I think, however, they really need to think hard about the idea of what they provide in a starter set. This is really aimed at the time-poor, cash-rich audience, potentially. And if I'm cash-rich, I want the deluxe experience. And I do find some of the bits and pieces in are missing. I would like some figures, just paper warrior stuff, some player maps and everything else that would make it easier for me to run something if I was doing this for the first time. Hello, Stephen. First call again. Oh, I love it when you call in. Well, I hadn't listened to your recording before I'd done my bit that you've just been listening to. So it's great minds think alike, huh? Listen, I'm going to circle back to some of the stuff that you've raised, um, but I wholeheartedly agree there is more that needed to be done here. You'll have to wait for the next episode, I think, to find out how I feel about the whole package, but absolutely spot on with your analysis. Thanks again for calling in, mate. Hi, Bows. This is Duane. Thank you so much for this podcast series. It's been absolutely invaluable. I would love to run RuneQuest, but here's the limiting factor for me, VTT support. I live in a remote part of the Arizona desert, 65 miles from the nearest city. All the games I currently GM, be it 5e, Call of Cthulhu, or Forbidden Lands, are games that have decent amounts of support from their respective publishers on at least one of the major VTT platforms. So I hope that in some future episode, you'll be able to do an assessment of what it would take for a GM to run a RuneQuest game online and run it well. Thanks again, Baz. Bye. Well, no, thank you, Dwayne. How brilliant to hear from a listener from all the way out there in Arizona. (laughs) It's tipping down with rain here. It's grey skies and quite chilly today. So (laughs) it's, uh, it's bonkers how podcasts work sometimes, isn't it? I hear you on the VTT thing. I really do. And given the last couple of years of COVID lockdowns and the way that we've all had to adapt to stuff, whether we were in that situation in the first place or we've had to radically alter our gaming plans, virtual tabletop provision is no longer a luxury. It's kind of a must-have. I will do some investigation into this, Dwayne. Rest assured, um, I have heard before that perhaps KSEM is a little bit lacking in this area. So I'm interested to go and find out. I'll have a look. I'll come back to you. Sounds like good material for the next step. Cheers, Wayne. Stay safe. Hi, Baz. This is Evan from the Exploring Gorantha YouTube show. Really enjoying the podcast, and I appreciate how much uh, you make me think in terms of 
coming to Glorantha Fresh and uh, dealing with the RuneQuest rule set. One of the things that we found when we did our review of the starter box, episode 13, uh, was that uh, there are a lot of other free uh, materials that Chaosium has made available on, a, on its website and uh, other locations. Uh, we have a handy list of that in our show notes for episode 13, but they include a, a wiki that has all of the rules from the starter set. Um, of course, the link uh, that's already been mentioned to the solo quest online and other handy things like an abbreviated character creation uh, that uh, helps complement the box. Keep up the good work. Great to listen to you. Evan, thanks so much for your kind words. I'll check out that YouTube show. That sounds like something I'm going to want to watch. I have tried to be a bit of a Puritan, really, and just stick to what's in the starter set. Um, and nothing else is quite hard to do. I, I didn't come to it completely fresh, as I think I've mentioned before. I have some knowledge of Glorantha and what's going on, but I really wanted to see what do you get if you just do the box and nothing else. I think it's quite telling that there is extra resource available. There's always extra resource available for everything, but that extra resource for Glorantha can seem intimidating. But I'm curious about the things that you've mentioned because they sound like they might help to ease people in even more. I'll check that out. Thanks ever so much for your call, Evan, and good luck with the YouTube stuff too. And now three call-ins back-to-back from Brent. Uh, Brent's really taken the time with these calls. These are magnificent. Three minutes of your time, and probably does more in these three minutes to explain what's going on in RuneQuest than, well, than any book I've ever read. I really appreciate these calls from you, Brent. Thank you so much for doing for them. I think they, they, they speak for themselves. I'll drop back in at the end and, and give you thanks and thoughts on those again. Here's Brent. Hi Baz, this is Brent. You've mentioned some mundane aspects of the setting. Glorantha is weird and wonderful, but sometimes it can also come across as a dull anthropology thesis. Description of coins and marriage practices and paragraphs on civic administration can be dry as dust. But these real historical details make Glorantha feel authentic in a way no other fantasy world does. Fasana's apple core shield that you admired is a light infantry pelte from ancient Thrace, and the wonderful map of Johnstown is a classical Greek polis in its layout. I'd contend that even if we don't recognise these connections, we subconsciously respond to their authenticity. I do think the starter set unfortunately lays the prosaic stuff on a little bit heavily for new players, but just being there in the background, it gives Glorantha substance. I think it is very difficult to articulate and a bit laboured in the new RuneQuest products, but I get what they are trying to do. Maybe it can only really be experienced in play. Thanks. Hey Baz, Brent again. On the question of what the core activity of players in RuneQuest is, I think the simple answer is the same as any other fantasy role-playing game. Investigating mysteries, seeking treasure, advancing your character, fighting badness and even dungeon bashing. But the difference is you're doing it in Glorantha. This means two things. First is that you are embedded in the world. Your community, whether that means clan or cult or other group, is invariably the source of many of these adventures, and the outcomes have real consequences for that community. The second is that you're adventuring in a sacred landscape. Almost all those evocative names on the maps have mythic or historical associations. Mountains that are petrified giants, valleys that are the footprints of gods, nature spirits everywhere, ancient and forgotten relics of lost civilizations. And you can't help but bump into these in interacting with the weird and wonderful while adventuring, or even just in the daily activities of life in your community. How effectively this comes across depends on the scenario and the GM. I agree the fire and the darkness scenario in the starter set did a good job of showcasing this. Whether the rest of the pack did, I'm not so sure. Hey Baz, Brent again. A comment on spirit magic. 
You'd commented that the spells all seem to be battle-focused, but the idea is that spirit magic suffuses all aspects of Gloranthan life. The rest of society would manipulate spiritual energy to aid their own daily tasks, making bread rise, keeping fresco plaster wet, increasing crop yields, and so on. These are not in an adventurer's toolbox, and so not in the rules, but a part of the fabric of the world, just as technology is in our modern society. As such, they don't rate special attention or wonder for a Gloranthan. A farmer or artisan or soldier in Gloranthan would think no more of casting half a dozen spirit magics in their daily lives than we would of messaging on our mobile phones. I personally find this casual stepping into the sandals of a person in an imaginary world as satisfying a part of role-playing immersion as the spectacular stuff. Rune magic and encounters with the mythic and divine are another matter entirely, and that's where the Gloranthan wonder comes in. Thanks. And there you have it. Wow, such excellent call-ins. Um, huge appreciation again to anybody who's taken the time to, to hit that button. And I know that, Brent, you bounced off the interface a few times to get your messages across. I'm really glad that you persevered, as did everybody else who called in. This stuff really helps illuminate my thoughts and the sort of shadowy corners of what's going on and the whys and wherefores. And I'm also really glad to hear that this is landing quite nicely with you guys. It certainly isn't isn't the case that the fans of Glorantha are just you know slavishly following what KOC and produce with with no critique at all everybody's got their little issues and little pet peeves and and I have been slightly nervous that I'm not always you know completely positive about everything that I've read but wrapping up this episode when we've got to the end of the four books well I can say that those three adventures we've looked through together have definitely helped as have these call-ins as well I'm going to say final thoughts, I think, for another episode. This one's run on long enough. And so with that in mind, I would just say that I will be back and I really want to bring together the whole package. I want to discuss what it means, whether I think it's been successful or not, what went well, what might be even better. And then really the crucial question is, what do I do now? Is it enough? to make me want to continue playing RuneQuest? Do I want to get those adventures onto a table? Do I want to generate some characters? Is this going to hit rotation with the many, many other games I have on the shelf? And I guess you'll have to come back next time to find out. Thanks for listening so far. This has been RuneQuest Year Zero. I'm Baz, and I'll see you soon.